Welcome to Wide Awake Stories from Insomniac. This is a journey by a journey which along the way will bring to you new color, new dimension, new value, and a new experience. <laughs> Broadcasting from the Insomniac HQ, this is Wide Awake Stories. Insomniac Radio on Sirius XM. Hey everybody and welcome to Wide Awake Stories. This is episode 18, which I guess means now we're illegal to ride bird scooters, fight for our country, not buy cigarettes anymore though. And you're legal to do pretty much anything in Europe. Yes, the elevated continent. Absolutely. Just getting that in there straight off the bat. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> we have a great show today, as we always do, but we have some new guests that I'd like to introduce. To my right is Daniel Bailey. Hello, hello. And then we have Shy across the way. Hello. And to my left is the one and only Zell McCarthy. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Of course. We also have a special four-legged guest named Forrest. So if you hear any clanking and I was going to say, my, my special guest Forrest over here running around. Shy's dog interested. is here in the studio. You can't see Forrest, but Forrest basically looks like a fraggle human dog thing. He kind of looks like a fox. A lot of people a thought fox. I got a fox. He he's very foxy. so interested. And he likes to bite things. Oh yeah, he's so interested. So Zell may have to trade places with me. Oh no, I'll bite back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Zell, tell us a bit about where you've where you've been these days and what you've been up to. These days, I am uh, holding down electronic music and dance music at Tidal, uh, curating and, and curating some editorial as well as uh, kind of refining the the way the playlists work over there. Uh, it's exciting. I've never really worked on that side of things, and it's interesting to, to be there. Cool. And before that, you were at Thump. Yeah, I was at Thump, uh, R.I.P. Thump. Oh, up there in the beautiful <laughs> disco heaven with so many other great dance music outlets. Uh, and uh, for a while I was at Beatport. Um, I was at Billboard for a hot minute. And, you know, I go back to the days of a print magazine. Yes. Uh, Big uh, yes. Shot magazine uh, was my was my baby. Deirdre, who is our one of our co-hosts, is often, uh, where is she? In Ibiza. IB, Ibiza. Ibiza. If you're American, it's Ibiza. Ibiza. I've never been. You've never been to Ibiza? I mean, I feel like I've looked at so many people's Instagrams over the last two months <laughs> that I feel like I've been there. It's, it's the best place on earth. I moved there for four years. How much of those four years do you remember? I mean, actually, to be honest, living there, it is a really crazy party island, yeah. but if you live there all year round, I actually partied a little less because it's just there. It's on your doorstep, so you can dip right. in and dip out. But no, I behaved myself mostly. In the summer was a little crazy, but you, know, you get dragged into it because constantly living there, you have back-to-back -back people saying, I'm coming out to see you, so you have a calendar right. of, of who's, who's, visit, who's holidaying with you that week. Vacation. I think we need to ask one of them actually how much trouble he did or didn't get into. I feel like this is a very sanitized version of events. <laughs> Zell's actually here because I, I, we had a Twitter beef. The, it, was, it was a mild, it was like a turkey patty. It wasn't it was really like, a full beef. It was like, it was like a, a light, it was like a vegan It was beef. a vegan beef. Yeah, it was a vegan beef. So Insomniac announced Secret Project and Zell and I got into a, a, a vegan beef 
about what it means to actually be underground. If you haven't read this, what happened? Now talk, walk me through it. What happened online? I love this. Zell, did you did did anyone see it? Uh, I don't have that many followers. Everyone saw it. Believe me, (laughs) the whole world saw it. Trending in LA. It was trending, yeah, probably nationally. And in in, in the Lower West (laughs) Side of Redondo Beach, it was was clearly (laughs) trending. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, what? Because I don't remember word for word what I tweeted, but I I know what I was responding to, which was the characterization of this event as being an underground event that was bringing something to a neighborhood. Chinatown um, that was uh, helping Chinatown develop itself and the two my two responses to that were like one like it's not really underground like by definition we can kind of discuss what that means I guess and then secondly you know, Chinatown is a neighborhood that's been like it's been well documented, has been getting gentrified progressively. And whether or not this event is there, that will continue. And this event has like, you know, arguably nothing to do with that. But we'll get into a little bit yeah. more of that later. Um, as always, we've got some great guests on the show. Uh, Mr. Doc Martin. Uh, Doc Martin, obviously, being of Los Angeles underground fame. And then we also sat down with Damian Lazarus, who is also on the East Coast. And I think Zell said before the show, he's got a Damian Lazarus story that he might want to share with us. It's so weird that if it ends up getting cut from the final version of the show, you can tweet me and I'll fill your, <laughs> your DMs with a really weird story. But let's get into our first interview. Uh, Doc Martin, underground house legend, to have a little chat about what the underground means for Doc and what he's been up to lately. Wide Awake Stories from Insomniac. I don't think it's possible to really have a conversation on the other ground without talking to the man I'm sitting in front of right now, the one and only Doc Martin. Welcome to Wide Awake Stories. Thanks for having me. So me and the team, we've been discussing uh, the underground as a movement, as a concept, as a style of music. And I know as someone who has really been around, I think you started DJing in 1986? Yeah. A while back. Did my first uh, underground loft party in 88, actually. Oh, where at? In San Francisco. Okay. um, With some DJs from the Limelight in London. And um, yeah. (laughs) It's a little bit different now. The, 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 The times have definitely changed. For people who may not be familiar with your body of work and probably living under some small rock uh, <laughs> somewhere, just educate uh, our listeners on the sort of run that you've had over the last 30 years and, and just sort of the high points for you in terms of releasing music, DJing. You've performed with everyone from Grace Jones to James Brown, James Brown. the Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible Flash. to bring out some high points, but maybe Flame. some of the ones that are the most memorable for you. Even this Saturday, playing with Stevie Wonder at Grand Doozy in Denver um, to, you know, start it when Carl Cox was starting off DJing for him at his club as a resident when I would go to London at uh, Ultimate Bass. <laughs> yeah. So, What were some of your favorite environments to be in wow. as a DJ? Um, I, I know a lot of people, there were things happening in loft parties, there was underground warehouse parties, Uh, The underground took many shapes and many forms. What were some of the best to you, the most memorable? Both in warehouses and clubs, to be honest. I remember coming to LA and people would just break into warehouses and set up and go all night. And that to me was phenomenal. I couldn't believe that was going on. People were a little more uh, uh, 
that I could say. <laughs> a little bit on the down low about it, and it was a very good thing. Loft parties were always great here. There was a, a venue called the Casa here in LA where. Mm -hmm. um, That's the first Nocturnal happened there. Yeah, there was parties there every weekend, and I've played pretty much every room in that venue to getting residencies in New York when the sound, actually being able to play at the Sound Factory was quite a highlight because no one was allowed in that DJ booth and to actually be able to play there. Being a resident at Twilo, um, residencies in Montreal, Fabric, being a resident at Fabric in the UK, being a resident at Cream in the UK. Um, I mean, these are all clubbing meccas yeah. for, for, for the uninitiated, you know? I've been DJing in Ibiza since 94. I guess I'm dating myself. But, <laughs> um, yeah, my first gig there was Coup, which is Privilege, which is Resistance now. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like that. 7,000 people and like the sun coming through a huge 50-foot plate glass window in the morning. It was just incredible. Ibiza kind of took my heart back then, I would yeah. say. Have you been back recently? Yeah. Maybe uh, a few days ago? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this year I played for Amnesia, which was really good. And then I did a really amazing night with Jamie Jones and Liquid Ice for Paradise, which was great as well. Very cool. When someone says to you, hey, come to this event, it's an underground event, where does your mind go immediately? What do you, what do you, what do you think? Rave of rain from the ceiling, you know, sweaty <laughs> condensation coming down. For me, it's always been about the music. To some people, they think it has to be in a warehouse to be underground. I think it's about your presentation, the vibe you put over with the crowd, and the actual crowd you're drawing. With our events, we still promote hand-in-hand -hand ourselves because we really want to make sure we have the right people when we do an event. And people are always like, why are you passing out flyers of all people? And it's like, I want to make sure I have the best crowd I possibly can play for. Yeah. And it may not be the, the masses, but it's always an amazing crowd. It's always mixed. It's always like club kids to drag queens to like, I even had the dancers from Snoop Dogg and the far side. There are regulars, all the house heads, techno people. Um, Coming from San Francisco, I realized at a very um, early time in all this that if you can mix your crowd and really have a mixed crowd, that will turn into an amazing event. Yeah. You know, we were having a conversation, I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago, and we were talking about the, the lost art of the doorman, right? <laughs> And, and you know, some people see a doorman, they see a velvet rope, yeah. and the doorman doesn't even have to have the list. It's not about being on the list. Yeah. It's about having someone there looking you up and down and going, I, I want you in my club. I want that vibe in here. I want. And some people look at that in, in, in today's day and age where, where, where universal acceptance is definitely more important than pushing people away based on their, their appearance. Yeah. But there are some people who come from that old school clubbing world who go, yeah, doormans were good because they were the arbiters of the... Almost the vibe had to pass through them in order to get into the club. Oh yeah, one of my first doormen used to be the doorman from a legendary underground club in Dallas called the Start Club. And we flew him out to San Francisco and kind of put him up to be our doorman. Yeah. And it wasn't so much about how you looked or whatever, it's, um, he was really good at reading people's vibes. And when they came up, they looked like they were going to be trouble, even if they were dressed nice or whatever, he wouldn't let them in. Yeah. And people would, you know, try to override him and get to me and I'm like this is his door I'm worried about the music right now yeah <laughs> you know? and the the crowd was always incredible you know I, I think you hit on an interesting point in terms of classifying the underground right and I think 
something that made underground events so so underground <laughs> is you had a very small group of people controlling very key things there weren't a lot of cooks in the kitchen there wasn't a lot of stuff by committee you were the music that was it you were the sound guy that was it you were the door guy that's what you brought the visuals and it wasn't so much a crew of people that was that was you would i be right in, in saying that um i've always i've always kept very tight-knit crews i've always um i started out djing and promoting so this isn't something new like people are like wow now i have to promote and it's like well i've always promoted and it's about having a vision a vibe and for us like musically what i want to bring across even if it's just for the night if it's raining out, I might change the mood of my music. You know, if it's a beautiful, bright day and everyone's been out all day, I might change the mood of my music to that. Sometimes I walk into festivals and see the energy scattered, and I'm like, well, how can I bring this energy back together and get people on the floor? And that's that's like the ultimate goal, I think. But definitely, when we did uh, we've, our latest adventure, Sublevel was uh, underground for 15 years. Yeah. And but meaning that we would do it in churches, lofts, movie theaters, warehouse spaces, um, just anything that was kind of out of the ordinary. And we had a very tight-knit crew. I had almost the same crew for 15 years. No one left. And that's here in SoCal. Yeah. Sublevel. Yeah, and then we've moved to some club events, but we've still tried to keep it where we can go after hours, and we've still tried to do our best to keep the crowd very good, which I think we've succeeded in a lot of ways because um, also booking policy has a lot to do with it. Tell me a little bit about that in terms of how you curate the musical angle of your events. And when we say the same amount of people, capacity, what are we talking about? Um, well, we've been doing things at a club called Union here, and I've been doing them Friday nights. We've been getting close to between 750 and 900 people on a Friday night. And last party was Kevin Saunderson, which was amazing. Um, I'm always looking for someone that has something special to offer. I know there are a lot of people out there that may be bigger draws, but I think it's important not to try, for us anyway, let me put it that way. For us, we're not trying to go for the 80%. And if we can kind of make their lives a little bit better when they leave than when they came in, that's the ultimate goal for us. It's never been about money or any of that. It's really been a musical thing, especially for me. I've been obsessed with music my whole life. And if I can bring something that they're not going to hear anywhere else or songs they won't hear anywhere else, then and they're, and they're responding, they're feeling it. You can look in someone's face, you can tell when they're feeling it, you know? And and that's like the ultimate payoff. I'm sure you have an amazing ear for talent. And when you curate the people who perform at your events, sure, I mean, Kevin Saunderson's been around for a long time, you know? And it's clear that a lot of those old school stewards uh, mm -hmm. of the genre are gonna come in, they're gonna know how, they're gonna check all those boxes for you, right? Yep. But I'm sure recently you've maybe seen that glimmer in some young cats too. Oh, yeah. There's got to be some some guys that you've seen or some girls that you've seen too come through and you're like, you know what? They know what's up. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot yeah, and ask you who, sure, who, please who you do. think fits that bill. Um, so far this year, we've had Ardalan come through and he's one of those guys that's multifaceted with music. He knows, I've seen him play stuff you would hear at a big festival. I've heard him play really underground stuff. I've heard him play Detroit, techno, um, acid house, garage vocals, uh, desert hard guys we've had come through. And uh, what's amazing about them to me is they all have their own vibe. 
And when they play together, somehow they can make it work like Wonder Twin powers, you know? Yeah. And I, I absolutely love playing with those guys. It's like one of, it's always going to be a good party when we all get together. And I'm looking forward to working with many other people. I get, people still send me demos and stuff all the time, but um, I'm not necessarily, for me personally, I'm not necessarily looking for the prime time banger dude because people can get that anywhere, it seems like. Um, I really want people to have a good experience when they come in. And oh, also Tara Brooks, she's not really new. And Anton Tumas, who are more on the Burning Man side, they both have a lot to offer, I would say, as well. We're sitting here in the studio, and there's a, I got a crate of records over here, some, some vinyl. Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, I'd hate to put you on the spot again, but if you think back to three records, in, in your history of playing Jesus. where I mean the Q burns are, are like have destroyed the first 15 seconds of the record or you've had to get doubles those gems that that used to work back then and they still work now um god uh recently uh I would say there was this double pack from Italy and all of a sudden San Francisco LA I don't think even the record really even got to LA till we started carrying it at our record store but uh, Blade, talking about the power, which is actually available on download now. Every time I drop that record, whether you're 17 or 50 years old, it just goes ballistic. I have this mashup of French Kiss and house music that seems to be killing everywhere I go. <laughs> and I've got a Maceo Plex mix of The Smiths, How Soon Is Now, that's been out for a while. And that's kind of, I've had to retire it. I played it so much. Um, I've had to retire it, even though it's kind of new, but uh, it's still one of those anytime, anywhere records. If the crowd's kind of indifferent, you throw that on and it just becomes mayhem. What's next? What's left? I mean, you've played with some of the most amazing musicians in the entire world. You've had residencies at the most popular clubs ever. I mean, I know that DJs, you can do it until your hands fall off. Um, <laughs> but what are the boxes left for you to check? I mean, what are the, the goals you still want to achieve? Well, I told myself when I started this, because at the time I started was, you know, the 80s, late 80s. In the 90s, I saw that wave of DJs really starting to, I don't want to say fall off, but lose their passion for it. And you can tell when you go to hear people and they're not passionate about it. I, I told myself if I ever lost that passion or that drive or that wanting to find new music or wanting to bring back older music that no one's ever heard, then it would be time for me to get out. And um, I, I don't think it's fair to the crowd either to do some, just go through the numbers and sit there and push buttons and whatever. I, I don't think they've paid money to see you. They really don't deserve that. Producing's been a lot of fun. We've been doing a lot of production, you know? Um, everywhere from Crosstown Rebel, Steve Lawler's label, Viva, uh, Soul Clap. We did thing for Funkadelic and Soul Clap. Uh, <laughs> so many records. A few projects for Nervous. Um, and these are all original productions yeah. from you. Yeah, Get Physical we've recorded for. A lot of the, more of the under, I guess we would be considered underground. To me, they're like main labels. Yeah. Because everyone in my uh, wheelbarrow knows about these labels and stuff. And I mean, I've done over 100 records and I still love going in and creating because I, I I've always tried to keep production separate from DJing. Production, you get into your own headspace and you make a piece of music. It's not really like, oh, is this going to be on the top 100? I don't, I don't go in with that frame of mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seems like all the records have done really well. They've all charted. They've all done well. Um, people seem to really be in it. I get a lot of messages daily about certain tracks and how they've touched people. And mm -hmm. that means a lot. Thanks for being on the show, man. You Appreciate it. it.
Insomniac Radio on Sirius XM. This is Wide Awake Stories. So being an English guy who grew up in London, I know all about Doc Martin, who's a local <laughs> LA uh, legend. Didn't Doc have a residency in Ibiza? I don't know. I don't no, know. I don't think he no, would. I don't think he <laughs> no, Not that I know. It's, from what I do know is that he did truly come from the underground. And, and still still is there like I feel like that is still home to him he's still welcomed there and there's still people that really uh, that won't go to a, an event where he's playing that's you know in a venue that has proper bathrooms and things like that it's like he's he's <laughs> pretty, raving pretty, off the ceiling yeah so, so gross. what does the underground now mean to you guys especially you know with my age everyone has this idea of what the underground is so I want to know what each person Thanks of the underground. I think that's the point, though. Like, it's relative because it means something different to everybody. I came from the underground in the UK where this whole scene started, arguably, you that's know, Chicago. fundamentally false, but... Chicago. This is what I want. Yeah. Okay, but Chicago, the music came out, but the parties were, were in the UK. That's where it grew. It, 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 it was... The embryo was in Chicago and Detroit, and then... And in New York, and in... That was the embryo. Wait, hang on. We never, can, do, if we can go... How far do you want to go on this? Because we can go back. British people need to understand that the reason why you guys had that scene, the reason why you were getting those records and the reason why there were DJs playing there is because they could not get booked here. Because after after really the AIDS crisis started in the 80s, there was this, this very articulated concern that having these kinds of events that in everyone's mind were an offshoot of disco were going to be epicenters for for spreading AIDS. I mean, it was it was deeply homophobic and it was also just so organized. The American record labels did not want to support these kinds of events and American promoters were just like not interested in in facilitating environments where there could be, you know, sex, drugs, and disco. So the reason why you guys had that those underground events, those raves and fields somewhere in the Midlands or wherever, was because <laughs> we couldn't we couldn't understand where, what it was. We couldn't get our hands on it. And American, you know, the United States is so big and American culture is so vast itself that it wasn't able to kind of coalesce in the way it did until much later. Yeah, absolutely. So but then, you but when are, it did, were great stewards of it, but you were borrowing it from us. Yeah, you can trace everything back one step further can't you if you need to but yeah I, 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 I mean I needed to I can accept that Perhaps the embryo was here but the yeah. whole thing flourished in the UK and you wouldn't have fought, you wouldn't have this scene that you're currently enjoying now if it wasn't for the UK as well so it, it just wouldn't happen like, it's it was, a symbiotic relationship it is it is yeah. and, and so my underground we, we love you guys <laughs> my underground uh, it, it, what my point is is it's different for everybody so you can say underground and it's obviously very contentious to say underground because to you that might mean something that to me is ridiculously commercial but it you know it's it's relative so my underground is raves in Essex not the Midlands oh, sorry raves in Essex and you know <laughs> illegal raves and, and all and all that kind of stuff but you know to someone else that could be like super cheesy like commercial and mainstream so. it also depends on the genre too I don't I like the underground I mean for me though I'm such a bass head that for me, I still will look to the UK because that's where I feel like it all generated Plus you, from. you weren't born when yeah, I was raving. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So for younger people, you know, some kids just automatically think that 
the UK is the underground and then you have another point completely where they don't even know you know the true story of where it comes from it's a good yeah. question a good they're question, very actually. uneducated can you even claim to have any in in quotation marks underground at all if you're 21 yeah but it's not a matter of being 21 that that determines it it's a matter of like where you're going i mean i i, I do fundamentally disagree that underground I, underground cannot be subjective i mean i think there's it's a location if you will you know it's below the mainstream and not just in terms of popularity or appeal but in terms of access to resources and in terms of uh you know the financing of an event i think you know it's not there has been a shift towards marketing certain kinds of music as being underground because that is the music that has traditionally or at least recently been, been played yeah but you know fundamentally like Peggy Goo can be underground or not it depends on who's releasing her music what kind of events she's playing and who's listening to it yeah you know I mean for someone who's top 40 you know Charlotte DeWitt is is unlistenable because it's so pounding and underground and strange and, and alien to people who are used to you know Justin Bieber or Travis Scott or whatever yeah to me underground is if, if you look at what's underground to me it correlates to a certain amount of risk a risk in terms of production and music musicality right are you willing to risk something that sounds pleasing to most to create something that sounds a little bit jarring or a little bit oh what what is i don't i don't get it i don't i'm, I'm off put by it at the beginning maybe a little bit it correlates to uh, geography where are you holding your event um who's financing the event like to your point and i think to me an event is underground if the risk level associated with the various things that are are putting it together um, are high. The fact that you just said to me underground is started that, that answer with that means it is subjective. To everybody it's a different thing. It means something else. It's a word. It cannot be argued that a, a, a word means exactly is 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 finite in its in its but I think that some people can be wrong about what they think underground is. I think there might be like a range of ideas that are valid, but I think there are some things that would just be inaccurate. So what you're arguing is that in order to deem an event underground, it has to hit a certain criteria. So what is that criteria? It's well, not think... safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I a mean, few well, years that's, ago. Sure, that's, yeah. that's, to me, that's the that's the quantifier. Is it a safe event? Is yeah. the music safe? Is it is it accessible? Is it easy? Is it, is it is the music is well is the venue safe like the, do you have security have you pulled permits like yeah. who who's doing that i think i don't i think the question of calling something underground it only comes up because there has been such a reaction against what has become so mainstream and what is mainstream has been promoted ad infinitum by the few major labels that sunk a ton of money into the same block of artists that are getting promoted by the same gang of agents to play the same residencies in Vegas and play the same tracks all the time. And people are sick of it. So the alternative to that is to say that something is not mainstream and to say, and that's why there's an interest in calling something underground. But, you know, like Rez, I think could be an example of someone who musically you might associate with an underground scene. But if she's signed to Dead Mouse's label and she's repped by Embrace and she has like all the the trappings of a major artist, she just doesn't have a radio friendly so sound. Then I don't think that we could say that she's underground. But that's not a diss on her or a knock on what she's doing. It's just a matter of 
facts about what her resources are and how she's able to exist within a music industry. So can a piece of music be referred to as underground? I think that if you are referring to a piece of music as underground, I think you are not doing so based solely on the music itself, but based on how it exists in our culture. And how it's is, distributed. Yeah. And how, yeah. So my next question, my follow-up to that would be then, how is a piece of music underground, say for instance, at one time, Steve Angelo and Sebastian Grosso were, um, they were underground. They That's weren't right. signed to major labels. They weren't Swedish House Mafia. They were underground, just regular guys on the street making music. How dare you say that they were just regular guys? <laughs> <laughs> that music, I would argue at that time in 2002, the beginnings of sort of, you know, Electro House yeah. was underground. But then obviously they are Swedish House Mafia and the record, the music that they made, even even at that time, very quickly, they went on to become very popular and mainstream. So at what point and how does it cross over to become not underground anymore? I think just the evolution of, of a scene of music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's really, it, I think it's also something that's hard to, to designate in retrospect because even at that time now we can look back and say that there were indications that you know the two guys well Swedish House Mafia did have Eric Prids in it for a while too and now it's hard to think of him as being an underground artist but even though you know he's wildly popular and plays Vegas residencies he plays music that you might still hear at an underground event well, he totally I think, does yeah I think the event I think the event that changes someone's status from being underground to mainstream is different for each artist could be a radio hit could be a the prominence on a lineup um, it could it could be any number of things I mean I would say though it's difficult it's hard to draw a line and it's because it, like you say you, you talk about Eric Prids and yeah he had Call On Me but then he also makes records under his name Cyrus D techno and they're played by what could arguably be called underground DJs Solomon, Carl Cox you know Nick Fanciulli these people playing his music so is Eric Prids underground or not you know making... well and like Fanciulli is an example too like there was a time when he was one of the biggest DJs in the world mm -hmm. and commanding top rates mm -hmm. and you know I think it is is it possible to go back into the underground yeah maybe like if you you know cut your fee <laughs> <laughs> dive 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 well I mean I did were you at hard me I was did you see Fisher's set I did Fisher who arguably is like one of the most Instagrammable popular you know DJs right now with his tracks and his self-promotion and all that stuff was literally playing banging techno during his set and and it was just going off at hard summer was and it, it was, was all it good? frat bros it, it was great it was, it was all, all super bros it was the young and, kids and, who barely listened to house music they you know like they're totems. so I, was, they, I mean yeah they're no. so not they're really not educated in house music or techno at all they're just like Fisher's huge like they heard Fisher's great that song losing and he it's had massive that tent but packed that tent out was and was slammed. literally playing banging techno and like yep. deep deep house and you see people just digesting music that they've never heard before it's and you great. can see they're it's like so much fun this to watch is really you cool you're there, you're watching it people are just like i, I don't know why you're i'm like, having such fun dope, what is this? i don't know if i do i what the f shazam is not coming up with yeah, the exactly. id for this track <laughs> that was a very interesting set i haven't seen a set with that many confused people jumping around in a while. <laughs> but they were having fun they were having so much fun but i feel like they didn't know how to digest it 
Well, and, no, and, I think they did. They they definitely were digesting it. They, he brought a bunch of people who would not be. They wouldn't be termed at, as underground. But, yeah, but at then all. But they were having fun. So I mean, another question is, I, I'm interested to know yeah. your answers to these because I don't. They, I I just think it's really vague. <laughs> I think if you're at hard, you're probably not really like able to claim the mantle of being an underground artist, mm-hmm. and that's not a knock on hard or or any artist who plays there, but you know. There are people who put on parties every week where they can't reveal to their friends and guests where the address is because if they do, it'll get busted up before it starts. There are people who are personally responsible for the safety and the audio and the beverage sales and every component of an event. And their individual livelihoods depend on the success of those events. Those are underground events. Those are underground communities where you're reliant on everyone's good behavior and you know the grace of the rave gods to make sure that you can you know keep your shirt on your back and and return for the next month that's like how all of this started in you know both the uk and the us and canada arguably but uh i and i think that like there's so much kind of romanticism and nostalgia for some of that the simplicity of it the authenticity of it um that we want to associate ourselves with those scenes in many ways and that's cool but i think we also have to acknowledge that like if you know hard is rained out or you know something catastrophic happens whatever that is there is backing there where everyone involved won't be you know homeless on the streets the next week which you know has happened to a number of of promoters in years gone by including pasquale yeah yeah pretty much Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's so funny because when, when Shy started this off by saying what's underground to you, back in the late 90s, what was underground for me was going to Insomniac events. We still had Nocturnal, but it was very, very small. The decor was paper mache and, and you know, lava lamps and black lights. You know, I remember the first, when I first started working for Insomniac, my first show was 2013 EDC Vegas. And I remember I was standing there watching the sort of crescendo on day three with Rob Seamus, old school yeah. raver, Thomas Kelly, old school raver. And we were sitting there going, holy hell, like, what we came up in and the and the, the world that we called our own when it was a new exciting thing that none of our friends wanted to do has become this and it really like i i, I couldn't handle it for a minute <laughs> it was very well, strange and the flip side of that story that that i that doesn't get told nor would it be told here frequently is that for every insomniac there were 20 other promoters who may have tried to do an event and maybe did one and that was it yeah. and they couldn't come back or they were able to do it for a year and then something else happened for every pasquale i mean they're i mean they're still out there they're probably still they're probably coming to insomniac events <laughs> they might even work here but like, it, like success was not guaranteed and and that risk like you were saying before rich is is really critical to defining what it is it is to be a part of an underground scene is there is no guarantee and once you kind of have a guarantee that like everyone's going to get paid everyone's going to go home safely then i feel like that risk has diminished you're taking different kinds of risks yeah. they're not life or death nor should they be so insomnia at one point was underground we can't argue that it wasn't right and then it would 
be argued now, I would probably agree that it's not. We so definitely okay. cannot argue that it is. <laughs> right. So so at some point it had to cross over. There was a line. And my, yeah. my point or my question is that like, how do you draw that line? Just like Sebastian Grosso and Steven, Steve Angelo, yeah. they had to cross over that line. So what I'm saying is it's, it's an arbitrary line. It's hard to find. What's the criteria for you to say, okay, cool, you are now no longer underground. Is it vague or is it a, a, a hard line? I think it depends on what, what you're talking about. Like if you sign to a major label and you're an artist, like go with God, you are no longer an underground artist. If you sign with a major agency, you are no longer an underground artist. If you are regularly playing events that are put on by some of the biggest promoters in the country that have corporate backing, then, you know, it would not be realistic to say that you're an underground artist, though you may still dip into scenes that, or events that have. But could you still play underground music? I think it depends on who you are. I think it's interesting that, that you were saying Fisher did that. I, I mean, it's interesting that he kind of got away with that. You're talking about the people like newly digesting this music. I wonder if there were people, if there were people there who regularly listened to the music he was playing, who were like feeling odd. He has, yeah, like, displaced he has three by, like, songs. So yeah, yeah. There's not much for them to really. They just see his character on social media. I think this dovetails really nicely into our next interview with, with Damian Lazarus, who is, is someone who has played EDC New York, um, someone who has played Insomniac shows, someone who now with Day Zero has a huge party that a lot of people go to in Tulum, right? Half of this office will... And uh, John Ochoa sat down with him and, and had a little chat about it. Wide Awake Stories. We're sitting here in Manhattan with the one and only Damian Lazarus. Today we're talking about underground and what that means in America and around the world. How you doing, Damian? Pretty good, thank you. Just arrived. I hear you're a little bit tired. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I've got two shows tonight. I've been greedy guts tonight. Ah. <laughs> two parties. <laughs> So the electronic music scene in America began as an underground movement and a fringe subculture. You had scenes in Detroit, scenes in New York, scenes in LA all popping up with a very underground vibe to it. Today, electronic music is all over American radio. You have pop artists stepping into the scene, DJs making songs with the biggest pop artists in the world. Is there such a thing as an underground scene in America today? personal experience like touring in America I have to say that there is a very healthy underground scene but I think there's been a big shift in recent years where this music that is my world which is let's call it underground house and techno for want of a better term for the moment has been growing at an astronomical rate and uh, in popularity but what's interesting about it is it's it's bringing in people from all walks of life, you know, you've got your your young ravers, you've got your kids that have been going to the bigger festivals and are seeking out the new, the, the smaller corners of the bigger raves and um, discovering interesting new music that they, they, they may not have been aware of before. So you've got that, those people and you've also got the, um, a big shift in the bottle service, the area of club world globally, not just in America, where a few years ago you'd uh, have these like cool venues venues that would be basically very different to the, the more kind of underground clubs where they'd be like table focused and you know selling tables for a lot of money and that scene used to be kind of hip-hop orientated and that's moved a lot more now into the more underground sound and then you have you know burners and, and the whole kind of like 
desert vibes that's been kind of building where you know this music has been really taking over the big events like that so there's all these different people coming from all different walks of life that are now kind of converging into this music and it does have um, it does have a, a it still retains its underground quality but because there's so many more people into this this thing it does kind of lift the lid on you know is this actually underground anymore who gets to decide what's underground and what's not me <laughs> uh, well, one of the people. Uh, no, I think that like the thing about, I mean, what is underground, right? You know, on one level, it's something that's like below the surface, that's uh, you know subterranean, um, you know, not out there in the open. What else is is being underground? It's making music and playing music for the passion, for the love, and not really being too concerned about financial gain or about fame and popularity. It's the people that are, you know, doing things, building things that are very DIY. You know, creating their own sound systems, creating their own spaces to hold parties, not telling everyone about it. You know, keeping it very low key. But for me, one of the key elements of like being underground is through history as far as I can make out has been in, in times of like local and global turmoil when like when the shit's really hitting the fan and you know there's there's an underground uprising brewing you know people are di feeling disenfranchised um, a little bit um, forgotten and not respected and that's usually when the best art gets created um, and that's usually when a new scene will, will develop but recently I don't feel that there's been so many new new scenes and styles coming you know flowing around you know the last big ones I guess were in the UK the dubstep and grime scene that seemed to be like one of the last uh, really underground scenes that like you know started to you know break through um, so yeah there's there's small pockets of things going on but we're not like in in like late 60s uh, LA uh, with this, this psychedelic movement or we're not in you know mid 70s New York with the punk scene and CBGBs and uh, uh, the Stooges and you know so that they were you know strong underground movements and for our music it really started like in the in the late 80s and like you said earlier and with techno in Detroit with house in Chicago and the disco scene here in New York that was the beginnings of like our, our scene but they you know they, they started very underground but like pretty quickly you know became quite a commercial thing you know the biggest the best DJ in the world at that time was Larry Levan and he was playing in a club called Studio 54 the Paradise Garage and like they were became okay yeah very underground but at the same time they were also the places that all the celebrities wanted to be at you know so it had this kind of commercial element at the same time um, so the problem I think the real problem at the moment is the, the access to information. So you can create something very very cool and very um, under the surface, but if it's cool and people love it, the word spreads like wildfire. And before you know it, your very cool underground event can be like the, the next big thing. And of course, what happens once you're the next big thing is then you become yesterday's news. Do you consider yourself underground? My number one thing is playing music and um, I like to think that the music that I, I, I play and select and the, the parties that I agree to play at on the whole tend to be in the right zone of which you would probably class as an underground event or party but 
over the past few years I've also been experimenting and branching out a little bit into into more kind of you know bigger events you know the bigger festivals and playing the bigger stages uh, and you know I never thought that was something that I really was going to feel comfortable doing but actually I'm actually quite enjoying it you know I don't really I'm not really getting any fear about stepping up in front of thousands and thousands of people and I never really curtail my sound to reflect the size of the crowd um, so I I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position, I think, in that people regard me, I think, as being a little bit of a maverick. I kind of just do my own thing, and you don't quite know what to expect, but you know it's going to be quite different, quite unique. So, okay, sometimes I might not be playing the most underground, inverted commas, event, but I will still be playing my brand of, of, of underground music. Yeah, that must be a challenge for artists who quote-unquote come from the underground and yet are playing a big show like EDC for so for example this year EDC had artists like the Black Madonna and Tiga and um, Maceo Plex all big names but also often associated with the underground well let me tell you that when uh, when I when I first moved to Los Angeles about uh, eight nine ten years ago maybe um, one of the first crews that, I, that I, I, I met and had meetings with were, was Insomniac and um, Carlos was um, very excited about the prospect of trying to you know include some uh, underground music in EDC. So I moved to LA because friends of mine were starting with were, were needing some help to start a label that was a uh, culprit and uh, there was a I could feel that there was some every time I was traveling to the States I could feel something really happening there was something fresh about to kick off and I was very excited about the prospect of being here and after a little while it resulted in in uh, meetings with Insomniac and, and Carlos offering me my own stage at EDC um, and we did that a long time ago so you mentioned like just last this year Macy Plex and people like that well we brought Macy Plex like 10 years ago to EDC uh, along with Jamie Jones and uh, our department and, um, and um, yeah, so but what was interesting is that uh, they kind of like we had a get lost stage you know get lost is my party that we do in Miami and uh, LA and other places and uh, uh, so we created like a get lost stage for for, for EDC and um, it was I guess just pre the neon garden so it was very very early so I remember back then you know the first few that we did you know the, the numbers weren't so great you know the festival was obviously like heaving with people but our stage was only like half full in that first year but we saw that kind of grow and grow over the next few years and as i understand it i didn't go this year but as i understand it now that neon garden area is one of the hypest uh, stages at the festival so so yeah i mean just from that you can see that the progression of like how people's like musical taste is is changing um i'd like to think maturing no disrespect to anyone in the EDM scene, but you know, I, I personally, I find a lot of that music quite, you know, childlike and, and banal. What I find interesting is watching artists like yourself and artists on your label who continually grow and grow and grow uh, in terms of awareness and, and fans, and like you said, stages getting a little bit more filled every year in and out. Brands like Get Lost and other brands going global. So you see a lot of artists rising from the underground, stepping into mainstream territory. Uh, one of the most recent examples I can think of is the new game Grand Theft Auto 
I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's one of the biggest video game titles in the world. And in the new their new game, they have avatars of the Black Madonna, Solomon, and Dixon in the game. So now you're reaching a really global audience through the video game industry that has never, probably has never heard of any of those artists yet it's right in their face so what does it mean to the scene when a global brand like grand theft auto steps into the underground so to speak you can see that on a, a couple of different levels there's one school of thought that would say well that's a major sellout for these artists and and uh, because clearly there's a lot of money involved in that that deal but on the other hand you could argue that it's it's a very positive Thing for this music to spread so much wider. So personally, I think I'm kind of sitting somewhere in the middle of those two schools of thought. I don't have a major problem with it, but I think that um, I think if you were to ask most of the people involved in that, then it was, you know, it was most likely to have been a, a financially driven reason for doing it as opposed to I want to push my music you know further and further you know or on the other hand people might just thought oh that's a cool thing to do um, you know it depends like there's a difference between a Grand Theft Auto or Cheezos you know doing a TV commercial <laughs> with a Bob Moses record or something you know uh, there's, there's a big difference between those two things so on one level Grand Theft Auto has like a very cool um, vibe around it I guess but it's a super commercial game right so it's difficult to know where to draw the line and what to say if well that's cool or that's not cool which essentially is what it what the underground boils down to whether something's cool or not you know so it's very subjective can an artist have a presence in both the underground and mainstream well, when I was writing my latest album with my band, The Ancient Moons, um, Heart of Sky, I made a particular effort to to play around with the, the, the various possibilities uh, within that. Because, like, personally, whilst I love underground music, I also love songs, you know, and I, I love melodies and... Um, and um, I like to hear vocals every now and then in my music and um, so I wrote a few tracks on this album, uh, specifically Fly Away and I Found You, uh, really good examples on the new album of tracks that do have like crossover appeal, right? But what I tried to do was to kind of try and find a way to create songs that were really cool, had like a very cosmic love story vibe, but no cheese, right? So to produce these songs that sound really cool but have a bit of a sing singy songy element to it um, and that that was I found it was a very difficult but very rewarding process to kind of deal with in the studio um, I think that I've come out of that process quite quite well and people seem to really like this music but I was aware every step that like there's maybe a couple of tracks in this album that like the hardcore Damien Lazarus underground fans might not like be into right but you take those risks and I think as an artist you've constantly got to evolve and uh, try new things so I think it is possible to live in both worlds it's just a question of like how you how you go about it and when you take an artist like Skrillex for example you know he's like a super mainstream commercial recording artist and DJ um, but he also has a very distinct underground sensibility um, and um, there's a lot of people out there like that but on the other hand you have a lot of other artists who are like literally just driven by the dollar you know in the same sense 
Do you feel an artist can use the underground persona and, and image as part of their marketing? Because underground is cool. And selling the underground image is a possibility also. I don't know, it's interesting. I was having a similar conversation with a friend just the other night. And, uh, and she was, we were, that, we were discussing exactly this. And she was saying, you know, but with you, she said, like, with, with you, like, you have this, like, this kind of wizardy, like, you know, spiritual vibe going on. And, like, people, like, think about you with, like, big hats and capes and the big beard and, you know, almost like, you know, playing, you know, rubbing a crystal ball while you're DJing. And to be honest, I, I didn't really, I, I mean, I don't really think about it like that. And I, I'm not, like... I, I'm not like purposefully cultivating this thing, but I guess that's kind of become a bit of my thing. And I guess that I'm more recognizable like that, which then makes people more aware of you, I guess. But the real underground heads, right, don't give a fuck about PR, about promotion. They just make their music. Um, a lot of them just like hide away and don't even show their faces. Um, think about people like Burial, for example, who made one of the most incredible albums of our generation. Um, but yet no one knows who he is. Um, in the same way you, in, you have like Banksy in the art world, you know? And the, the, these are like the true visionaries and the true artists. Um, but like I said, I think that people like that only really come through and come to the fore when there's a more of a, a movement of like disenfranchised people looking for an outlet to kind of like creating art with a reason, with a purpose, like rebelling against something. I mean, my label's Crosstown Rebels and the other label's called Rebellion, you know, and the, you know, the idea is that we're, you know, constantly evolving this, this sound, this music to, to go against the grain and against what the majority of the people out there are doing or listening to. But, you know, we, it's becoming slightly more difficult these days because this sound and this, this music has become so popular. When I go online, sometimes I see fans from the so-called underground and from the so-called mainstream kind of just batting heads online, you know. You see each side battling one another, you know, saying my, my music's cooler than yours, oh, yeah. blah, 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 blah. It goes on. It goes on, man. Does a fan have to choose a side? Can can they be an underground fan who likes radio music or vice versa? Yeah, I, you know, I think everyone has the right to have the freedom to, to listen and to enjoy anything that they, they, they want. I find it difficult and hard to, to understand how a hardcore fan of, of mine or of anyone in, in my world of music can also be a big fan of someone like Marshmello, for example. Um, I find that kind of difficult to, to, to get to grips with because the two worlds are so far apart from each other but yeah i mean i mean if you are then more power to you it just shows that you have more kind of like you know breadth of uh, ability to kind of take in a bit of everything in your in your your mind and in your heart you're back with your uh, ancient moons life project you have a new album heart of sky for our listeners who may not know how does the ancient moons project differ from your solo stuff 
Okay, well, first of all, uh, I'm working in a studio with like uh, with my band, you know. So there's um, there's keyboards, there's uh, there's live drums, percussion, a vocalist. So uh, w- with the band, I'm just trying to find a way to take what I do from the heart as a DJ and and translate it into uh, a live show with musicians and to create songs, uh, but also to try and create my unique take on the, the music that I'm into and um, so it's it's still a, a big experiment I'm really enjoying it when the first album came out in 2015 uh, our live shows tended to be the more kind of late night kind of like clubby dance uh, angled festivals but th- this year with the second album we've been playing a lot more crossover uh, more all-encompassing festival sh- uh, stages um, like just the other week we were on the stage after Little Dragon and, and Chet Faker and uh, you know as opposed to just playing with like you know people from 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 my world so it's a different thing the songs are really cool I'm very proud of this record we're just about to release a film actually um, uh, where we We've created the music, and this amazing new film director, Jesse Muslim, has created this movie about um, the families that make the Lebanese red hashish in Beirut, just outside of Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, it's the first time that the, these people have been filmed, and it's an interesting time in, in, in Beirut right now for, for the legalization of marijuana and stuff. So I think the Damien Lazarus and the Ancient Moons is, a, uh, is an extension of, of what I do as a DJ and, you know, myself as an artist and I'm just trying to push some boundaries with this next year you're back with your day zero event um, I've never been and I still kick myself for, <laughs> yeah I, I still kick myself for never going um, I've seen the pictures I've watched the videos I've heard the stories how do you explain an event like day zero to a newbie like me okay well here's the thing I'm not going to all right because um, we're good the party's amazing, and uh, we have the best people that go to the party, so I don't really need to promote it to a newbie like you. <laughs> but uh-huh. what I can say to you <laughs> is um, if you were to come, you would literally have the time of your life. For anyone out there listening, you should really Google image, Google video, day zero, and just buy your ticket <laughs> based off of that. Um, how did the idea of day zero come about, and you know, what was the original vision behind it? Um, well, I, I created it um, in 2012, and De- December the 21st, 2012 was the date that the Mayans declared uh, the end of their calendar, and I'd been playing music and traveling to Tulum in Mexico for, for many years up to that, that point, and um, I guess I had a little bit of a cosmic moment um, beneath the stars um, uh, the, the year before and kind of something very uh, special happened and I, I uh, uh, the result of it was that I decided that to create this event that would try to connect our music and our sound and this like you know our underground electronic community with the ancient civilization of the Mayans and um, and the coming together of that was was very magical and since then it's just grown into something that just becomes more magical by the year what do you want to communicate with an event like day zero um, like, uh, look, it's not, it's, it's a, it, it runs through everything that I do, actually. The, the, the Get Lost events, the Day Zero events, the record labels, the music I play when I'm DJing, you know, the whole vibe of what I'm about is all 
basically focused on one thing and that's me maintaining my life and being happy and proud of the music that I'm working with and the people that I'm pushing through and connected and lucky enough to be connected with and friends with. Uh, I have some amazing artists that I work with and um, it's a joy to be me right now i'm very lucky i'm, I'm blessed because um you know i've created like a thing that i do that um that really 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 connects with people you know on a level that is beyond words you know some of the just like when i'm playing sometimes looking out people's faces and their emotions and just seeing how people are connecting with each other on the dance floor and the uh, energy that is coming back at me is so rewarding. So I just want to continue doing this for as long as possible and just um, keep spreading spreading the, the good word of, of, of very, very strong, special music. Insomniac Radio, broadcasting dance music 24-7. You're tuned in to Wide Awake Stories. So going back to the to the underground argument, the reason why we're discussing what is underground and what's not and what it means to individual people, although it's been argued that it's not subjective, is uh, <laughs> is because of Factory Night Three. So we might as well plug that. Yes. So Secret <laughs> Project. Yeah. The, the the show that started it all. The show that launched a thousand tweets. It's pitched as an underground music event. Correct, and that's what—that's where the discussion went. So, what what are the DJs on this lineup, and and are you arguing, Zell, that none of them are underground DJs? I'm not arguing that, but I'm arguing that it's not an underground event. That's fair enough. And uh, I have to say, like the people I know, and you guys probably know them too, or some of them who run underground events, don't care that there are people calling themselves underground or events that are marketing themselves as underground because it actually gives them cover to go unnoticed and to better serve their guests. I've, I've had this discussion with my friend who's an underground DJ and he definitely is. I just want to point out that he used air quotes <laughs> for an underground. I've had this discussion many times over the years and, and the thing about the underground is that you often get a lot of snobbery. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, it's not underground and, you know, I, I'm only all about the underground and this is what I do and I believe in this, this is underground and, and you're not cool if you're not underground. But the thing about the underground that I often think is forgotten is that the underground is fed by the overground, by the mainstream, in my opinion. because it- I, I disagree. Well, what I was going to say when, when you had mentioned uh, your last comment is someone who goes to a secret project and is exposed to, using air quotes, underground music. Yeah and hears sounds that they wouldn't normally hear and, and, and DJs curating sets and taking people on journeys that you don't get when you're seeing someone for 48 minutes, you know, at, at, a, at a festival setting. You, you, you may have just created more clientele. The overground may have created some underground clientele because maybe those people might be more inclined when they see some name on a, on a flyer or someone says, hey, I'm having this great party in downtown LA at a warehouse. That is definitely a mentality that some promoters will agree with. But I also think that in order to really better understand what's going on in the underground scene here in LA and in the Bay Area, mainly in Oakland and other parts of other cities, is that there isn't this kind of typical capitalist mindset that most of us have where people want to grow their audiences. Bigger is not better. And in fact, bigger can often put you at risk and you can 
end up having an event shut down before it even happens. So attracting crowds that are new to the scene isn't necessarily good if they are going to bring an element that is ultimately counterproductive. I think we need to tie back around to the person who originally asked this question, oh who was shy. And I kind of want to know, now that you've heard sort of us waxing the about debate. the debate. A young person and two olds. And two olds. <laughs> two olds. <laughs> two olds. Um, what is underground to you? And you are again 21. I'm 21. I'm the baby. I'm such a bass heavy fan that I love like the sound system guys that throw parties for 30 people still in downtown LA and I don't tell my friends because I don't want to see them there and I don't want them to you know tell other people and make this shut down before 7 a.m. like I want to listen to you know these guys from Detroit that play the dopest grime music that we don't necessarily have access to still like it is ridiculous like yes you could have you know, Skepta and like everyone's like, I love Skepta, but that's not, to me, that's not what I wanted to listen to. Like, I want to go to these venues where I'm like, hey, I need someone to walk with me because I don't necessarily feel safe. <laughs> I want to drink that $4 tequila that I'm going to puke my brains out and like talk oh, to these girl, dudes. we need to work on that. <laughs> no, I've been only in these situations though. You know, like I love the entire feeling of walking into this room being like, I need more of this, you know? And I work with Bass Rush, which some, you know, heavy bass fans are like kind of anti. They think it's too mainstream, even though we book, you know, up and coming talent that is still like super underground in that realm. But I agree. I think it has to do with if how the music is accessible, you know, if they're signed to, you know, never say die or something like that. I'd be like, oh no, you know, that's not... But You're a zomboy to me, is it? That's just, it, it's it's elitist. It's, it's I don't like, think so because I also support these big artists and I love going to, I mean, I work for such a massive promotion company. I, I, I'm fine with, I mean, I'm the wrong person Thanks, to take. Snobby. Yeah, I'm fine I mean, with I'm pretty snobby about it too. Like I have like my two friends that were like, can't wait for this this Saturday thing. There's no event page. There's nothing. We just know it because we knew a sound guy. Link me to the Facebook event page. Yeah, there like, is none. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like no. those, those are the events that I'm super excited to because they're so rare and they're so different each time. I'm never going to know what that song was. I'm never going to hear it again. And that certain feeling I get in this place is not something I'm going to get at a club show of some artist that is still to other people small and underground and I feel like that what you just described that process of, of discovering and trying to find something that is unlike what you've experienced before is what justifies that attitude of snobbery and I think the elitism is is only in context of people who don't kind of refine their taste, don't seek out something that's new and are happy with, and it's fine to be this way, happy with whatever everyone else is doing. And I think, but once you're in those events, once you're in the space of an underground event and you're amongst other people who have done the work, who have kind of, you know, it's learned- so sketchy. <laughs> to have, like, I love it. the sketchiness. Everyone, I mean, I've never felt unwelcome at an underground event once yes. I'm there. Yeah, 100%. But that kind of brings me to the point I was, I was gonna mention earlier or gonna make earlier was that, the underground is fed by the overground in the sense that entry-level dance music, quite a lot of people come into it and then they kind of tire of it quickly in a yeah. year or two years or And whatever. then get and into then they the look And then they look for other things. So they have a conversion experience. I think that's definitely right, possible. So that happens. So therefore the underground is fed by the mainstream because they entry-level into like whatever's popular at that time. Then they tire. Major laser. 
Okay, major <laughs> lazy. Yeah. They tire of it and they look for more um, adult sounding, more, more complex intelligence. Right, music. but not everyone comes into it through that. Not point everyone, too, but it does. That, but it is fed. That's my point. Is yeah. It is fed by it. So, and if you and if you have if you were wearing shiny hot pants and had like and, the ones you have on exactly, right now, exactly, <laughs> and, and you had like. Uh, Glow sticks and, and white gloves four years ago. Yeah. Can you then can you then convert and be underground? Why not? They don't let you into the Bergheim though. I had a candy phase once and you know, like the very sparkly bottoms. It's not that I think that things aren't going that the mainstream doesn't move things in the underground in that direction. But I don't see it as a feeding mechanism, but more as a pushing mechanism. Okay. And what happens Semantics. <laughs> well, yeah, slightly, but I think that like that's what that's like mainstream DJs are trying to like take on and appropriate aspects of underground culture to keep themselves cool and edgy. Underground yes. DJs are always trying to evolve their own sound, give people something new. And I think that there's a mindset that's different. People in the mainstream, and this applies to people at all levels of the industry. If you're working in the mainstream, you are typically being driven by that predominantly capital capitalist viewpoint of trying to acquire more you know, money, wealth, power, etc. And in the underground, your pursuit is generally more it's focused. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, just feeding yourself breakfast. Yeah. No, but but per, you're pursuing an art, and you know, hopefully, you're able to pay your bills. But you know, I can tell you, they don't always do that. So, <laughs> I'm sure we have touched many nerves out there. People who are listening, if you have thoughts or if you have a viewpoint that you want to share with us, you can hit us up on Twitter hashtag Wide Awake Stories. And uh, let us know what you think. We definitely want to get feedback from y'all. You can find Wide Awake Stories on the Insomniac Events SoundCloud. You can comment there. And uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can also comment on iTunes as well, actually. You can leave a review and, and a rating. Oh. It bumps us up. Fantastic. Do that then. Yeah. Five stars. Five yeah. stars. Five stars. And, uh, and of course, we're on Sirius XM. On Insomniac Radio. And, and on Spotify. And on Spotify. We're everywhere. We are everywhere. definitely we are not on, underground. <laughs> Zell, you're on the Twitter too. I am on Twitter, but only for beefs. Just oh, no. <laughs> I only do beef. <laughs> I only do beef on Twitter. Yeah, I'm at Zell McCarthy. That's Z E L M C C A R T H Y. Z E L if you are Canadian or, or British. Exactly. <laughs> the Queen's underground English. You know who is kind of underground, but also overground is uh, Sam Yu uh, bringing us his King of the underground. monthly selection, A New You. As Sam's got some new hot fire for us for this month. Sam, why don't you drop that for us right now? This is Insomniac Radio on Sirius XM. Wide awake stories from Insomniac. It's a new month, party people, and I'm stoked to be back here to run through a few choice cuts I've come across while digging through those digital crates that I call my inbox. I've got some serious, serious heat lined up for you, so just make sure to stay with me. In an effort to keep with the vibe of the guests on this month's show, I figured it would be a good idea to shine a light on strictly the sounds of the underground. If you happen to consider yourself a house and techno head, which I personally do, you've definitely come to the right place. For everyone else out there, don't trip. I'll make sure to get you back next time. If you've made it this far into the show, then you would have heard that Day Zero is in fact coming back and that news literally had me screaming on the inside like a little boy whose biggest wish just came true. I can't wait to get back to Tulum to just get lost in the vision of Damien Lazarus and frolic in the jungle with all of my friends. Right now you might be thinking, what does this have to do with music? Well, 
I'll have you know that my first pick is coming at you from Rebellion, the sister label to Damien Lazarus's Crosstown Rebels imprint. And in my mind, it was made specifically for a Sunrise Day Zero set. The man behind the three-track EP goes by the name of Jonas Rossman. He's a Swedish house producer who is known to pack some serious emotion into his productions. The title track is called Glades of Glory, and it's, it's just a thing of beauty. The Rebellion crew was actually kind enough to let us premiere it this week as part of our Track of the Day series, but to be quite honest, I was, I've been feeling it so much that I figured I would play it here for you as well. It's brimming with lush textures that are backed by tribal drums, and there's tension and suspense spilling out from every note in this nine-minute display of exotic deep tech. It's just a stunning tune, and I really, really hope it gets played. Uh, when I go to day zero come January. It feels like I've been waiting a lifetime for my next track to service. I first came across it in an essential mix that George Fitzgerald put together back in June. And no joke, I was feeling it so much that I couldn't resist the urge to keep reaching for the rewind button to run it back every time it ended. It officially came out uh, the first week of September, um, which makes me really happy because that means I don't have to queue up the mix anymore just to hear this specific song. The culprits responsible for this gorgeous bit of melodic house are multi-instrumentalists Lawrence Hart and Casually Here, um, the former being a longtime collaborator of Fitzgerald's over the years. Um, both of these UK talents came together to create a two-track EP that was picked up by the lauded Hot Flush recordings. Wanderlust is the name of the tune that I've been borderline obsessed with. Okay, well, fully obsessed with, but whatever. The tune is just, it's just really, really breathtaking. It has airy atmospherics and lofty melodies and angelic harmonies. And it's just one of those records that had me hooked from the get-go. Time to shift gears and head into some wall-rattling warehouse vibes. Spectre is a German duo that I've pretty much been following since I first caught the Technobug. Um, they're the masterminds behind the powerhouse Respect imprint, and they're turning to Dutch label Filth on Acid for their next EP. It goes by the name of Eye of the Swarm, and it's slated for release at the end of this week. Soul Movement is the lead number on the package and 
It's easily one of the most massive techno cuts I've heard this year. Clocking in at just over seven minutes, the track pummels forward with just this giant power. It's centered on huge plucky stabs and these ravey synth progressions that fire out behind a commanding vocal that is guaranteed to put bodies in motion. I'm itching to hear this one out on a proper sound system, uh, but I mean, even on headphones, it's still a banger. This next one literally just came across my desk and it's from a Belfast-based producer named Gary McCartney who has been making some serious waves under his Ejecta project. He's also been gaining some considerable traction under an alias called Transwax and it's a project that takes old school trance elements and samples and repurposes them for the modern dance floor. It somehow ends up sounding simultaneously fresh and familiar. He's put out a stream of releases on Os Music, Unknown to the Unknown, Sasha's Last Night on Earth, um, but he's now prepping a new four-track EP for Richie Ahmed's 432 label, which is scheduled for release in the middle of October. The lead cut is called Unloving, and it's the type of record that really works at all hours of the day. There's rolling drums, silky strings, and sauntering chords that Ejecta elevates through a looped vocal sample that calls out the track's name. It's the epitome of a party-pleasing track, but if you're looking for something that's more rave-ready, I would highly recommend scoping out the Special Request rework. Both of these tunes are monsters, so um, I guess just take your pick. Stories. 
I'm going to close things out in proper come down style with a track that I know works for the occasion because I've personally winded down this the past few weekends by slipping this tune on uh, during sunrise and just letting it ease my mind. So Marabou State recently hit us with their third studio album. It's called Kingdoms in Color and it shows Chris Davids and Liam Ivory in the finest of forms. To me, it's rare these days to encounter an album that you can hit play on and just listen to it straight through. But surprisingly, this full length is definitely a front to back type affair. The end result is a 10 track effort that makes me feel feelings that I didn't know existed before. Um, they've been drip feeding a few, a, a few of the tracks from the album in the last month or two. Um, tracks like Nervous Tick and Turnmills really got stuck inside my head, but when they released the full album, I was immediately drawn to the penultimate track, Veil. It's one of those records that just has a way of touching your soul to the core. It's been my go-to after-hour song, uh, a track that I just I just play when the party's over and um, I'm trying to relax a bit. And, and I'm pretty sure I'm just going to keep coming back to this this song after the rave for a long time. for listening thank you Zell for coming by and being a guest on Wide Awake Stories anytime did we ascertain what underground is or not you else? know I, I think different strokes for different folks uh, well I agree with that that's, I don't agree with that's, that that's, that's <laughs> the point that's what I'm saying it is subjective the debate ranges I love are, you guys anyway yeah. we definitely want to hear what is your underground and who was right tonight so. and uh, <laughs> if, you, stories. if you are in SoCal and you're going to be up to Nocturnal we will see you up there uh, come look for me I'll be the one wearing all black <laughs> like every other person that works at Insomniac and I'll be in the underground arena yes <laughs> hanging out I'll be wearing rave jewelry are you coming to Nocturnal I don't think I can miss it now <laughs> we go. I know someone who can put you on the list Under- good <laughs> this underground overground event Here we it, go. it is the most underground overground yeah. event I mean it is 20, 23 years old I mean it was definitely at what point did Nocturnal not become underground I mean uh, I can tell you <laughs> <laughs> please do we're going to continue this debate long into the night and we We will see you next month for episode 19 of Wide Awake Stories. See you then. Bye.